Welcome to I Was Told There'd Be Food, a podcast by Jen and Alex about all things academia and history. How do you get academics to attend anything? Uh, secret knowledge about um, uh, where they get the food that they give you at the workshops. Who cares about where it comes from as long as it's there? I guess that might be the difference between our focus on the humanities. <laughs> I don't know. You can ask. You can ask the. You can ask the, the 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 why, and I'll ask the where, and eventually we'll both get to win and fulfill the historical mandate. Okay, sure. So uh, I, I'm afraid to ask you how you are today. You seem a little, a little loopy. <laughs> no, I think that's probably just the time of the semester uh, where everything begins to hit uh, crunch time. And you were sleeping less, and so yeah, you're constantly just all of your priorities. It's It's been busy, I will say, the last couple of weeks prepping for a, a major conference next week, and yeah. yeah. How about you? Well, I'm kind of in a weird position because having, you know, defended and everything and finished jumping through all the hoops that, you know, like the grad college wants, revisions, so that, you know, your headers look exactly like every other grad student and et cetera, all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I had a conference that I just got back from. And so I had, you know, the run up to that. But now it's like the beginning of November. And because I'm not teaching this semester, it's really weirdly calm as far as like academic stuff goes. I don't know what to make of it. It's a strange position. Eye of the storm. Mm, Probably. Well, I guess in preparation for the rest of the semester, I hope you have lots of coffee. I'm sure I will. I just, yeah. I mean, you know, family life, different things are going to be busy. I don't, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to say, I mean, anytime you start running towards Thanksgiving, uh, you just, November goes fast, right? Like no matter what, it always goes fast. (laughs) You you think, oh man, I've got a month. I can work on those research projects and, and fill out those grant proposals and everything will be fine. And then it's like Christmas week. Exactly. And then you realize you didn't send out your cards. And if you do the holiday cards, which I still try to do, but... Which is interesting. I don't know how many people are still sending out Christmas cards, like physical cards. It's a lot fewer than used to. But I, there's something so nice about getting them in your in your mailbox. Like, and I mean, and not everybody I know ce- celebrates Christmas, but uh, some of those people still ce- send um, cards. And I... Mm-hmm. Like, I so appreciate getting them that I try to be the person that sends them. But I'm really bad. I should start thinking about it now, now that we're talking. Right. And I won't. I'll put it off, and then uh-huh. I'll be late. Listeners, be sure to tweet to our official account to remind Jen to send her Christmas cards early. <laughs> so what else did you end up doing at the, at the workshop conference thing? Um, well, we'll talk about some of it today. We're going to talk about, like, uh, what to expect when you go interview for jobs and stuff. And so we had a whole professional development day. Hmm? That there won't be any. There, yeah. There won't be any interviews. Yeah. You know, just go shed some tears in your coffee. There's not going to be a job to interview, so don't you worry. (laughs) So what? And we're done for the day. Thanks for joining us. So what what actually did you end up talking about? Was it with tenured professors? Was it with career planning specialists? Um, no, it was. So it was a small like grad workshop type conference. So we had two historian, well established in the field, current faculty members at different universities. I'm not sure if I should like 
shout out who they were or not, should I? I mean, they weren't telling you anything clandestine, right? Well, I suppose not. just don't know if they want to be podcast famous. Oh, I suppose. <laughs> well. Okay, so it was a small uh, graduate workshop, and we were led by uh, Hasia Diner and Tony Michaels, both well-established um, historians and great professionals to give us excellent advice about interviewing and all sorts of aspects of career planning. So I'll be sharing some of that today. Most of the professionalization aspect is something you talked about wanting to spend some time on today, which I think is great in part because whenever we have uh, speaker lunches, uh, every single, most every single week here, we spend a decent amount of time asking them, so how do you actually begin to navigate the job market? Because we all know it's it's going to be it's going to be uh, right. It's mm-hmm. going to be <laughs> it's going to be just constant frustrations and sending out hundreds of applications. Specifically, if you're lucky enough to get to the interview process, how do you begin to ask the right kind of questions to show that you are the perfect candidate for the job and avoiding a lot of the pitfalls? And I, I gather that this was something that you got some decent advice on. Yeah, I mean, I would say like absolute number one thing would be to study up on wherever you're interviewing. Know the faculty, Mm. know what specializations they have, you know, know what the department is geared towards. I mean, you might do, you know, you are doing history of science, but there are very few specifically dedicated history of science departments. So, you know, you need to know, you know, what your audience that, you, that you're talking for. to. And you need to prove right. that you've looked into the university and, yeah, all that those you're things. you're a good fit for the Michelin State. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is the same kind of advice that I hear all the time, too, of we're trained for however many years now specifically to be good researchers. Put it to your own benefit once in a while here when it comes to the job market and actually do the research, right? Exactly. So mm. that's like just basic step number one, which hopefully people already know anyway. But what about more the the difficult aspects of the difficult questions, like when you get to the interview process, your own presentation of, are you more of a research-focused person? Are you more of a teaching-focused person? How do you balance the two? Again, that'll depend on the university you're applying to and the program, right? Right. Presenting what seems to be the most appealing candidate as well to them seems, I don't know if there's a single good approach to that, or even prepping for specific interview questions. Well, one of the things we got out of this, which was fantastic, was we had Hasia and Tony give us actual questions that we could expect. So we could talk about some of those, but we could also talk about some of the other aspects of things you need to worry about and pitfalls and things in the interview process. I'm intrigued by the questions. What questions did they give you? So they said you could expect a question like, how do you coming from wherever it is you're coming from, X, Y, Z, the, the details of your background, how does that fit with the needs of our student population, right? Okay, because mm-hmm. their point was, if you come from someplace like Stanford, which, you know, has a very specific student body makeup, but what if you're now interviewing for a smaller teaching school where most of the student population or commuter students or maybe first generation students etc a very different makeup 
it could go mm-hmm. the other way too. So you need to be able to have a plan for how you would answer that question for each place you're going. Like how, like what in your preparation has made you a good candidate for whatever university you're interviewing at their student population. Which I think necessitates also this sense of knowing something about the student population, like determining um, if they are primarily a commuter college or, you know, if they're a college that caters to certain different populations of students. You know, there's a big difference between the tiny, the tiny town liberal arts college, which has been there for 100 years, and the college which was set up because you've got people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who want to go back to school. Mm-hmm. to learn a skill set. Right. So it all goes back. It's always going to go back to doing your research beforehand. Another question it would be, how? what do you contribute to our program? And uh, that can cheerfulness. Be cheerfulness. Well, there you go. Um, it could be also something to think about beyond just like classroom teaching, right? Like you could talk mm-hmm. about specific methods you have, or maybe you're utilizing pedagogy that's different to the school. Uh, so that would mm-hmm. be something to highlight, but you could also I'm wondering a little about that and I think I think maybe my question has already sort of been answered in the back of my head but did they talk at all about if you are if you are part of any group or population that is traditionally underrepresented in college faculties would that be a legitimate point to discuss at all mm. by your face I can you can already imagine the same things that I'm imagining problematic wise with bringing up that kind of topic yeah, I mean, I think there could be careful ways of doing that, but and we didn't specifically talk about it. But mm-hmm. if you were going to talk about how you could maybe use an experience to help uh, together, maybe you want to help bring together some sort of extracurricular reading group to, to bring together, you know, underrepresented people or to teach about marginalized voices or I don't know. I mean, there, there could potentially be a way to do it. We didn't specifically talk about it. Um, I would, I will, we'll get into it in a second, but I would caution going deeply personal, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think more of it was coming from that perspective of some people do have uh, unique perspectives among certain groups of people. And they also work better as that mediator with the instructor being the mediator of large bodies of information to populations of students. Mm -hmm. Sometimes certain people can relate better to certain groups of students Mm -hmm. just because of their own uh, Well, I mean, if you wanted to say something like, I think, okay, I'm the first person to go to university in my family. And so I understand the struggles of those students. um, And so I can... You know, what I bring is a sympathy and understanding um, that could help. I could be a valuable resource to your student population. I mean, something like that, I think, could be perfectly fine. Yeah. And that's more of what I was thinking. Okay. Where do you think the field is going, and how do you fit? That way. That way, right. So the... I, I suppose gonna... I suppose they probably would recommend you don't have too many jokes. <laughs> probably not. No, we didn't really discuss that. We were all very serious. Let's see. Why do you want to come here? 
And that one, I think, is also maybe a, a potential pitfall. Oh, definitely. Um, All of these are potential pitfalls. This well, is... <laughs> a potential pitfall in the sense of there are so many people who will say there are whole you know, swaths of the country or parts of the world that I will just not apply to, even though academic jobs are already difficult to come by. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it does. It probably is something that has to be considered uh, from the perspective of administration by considering: Are you going to be the sort of person who is going to stick it out at a location that is maybe out of the mainstream of the biggest names in academia, so that you can have a job to use as an opportunity to later on move elsewhere? Or do they mm-hmm. feel like you are going to be? from a cultural background that really would clash with what is normal at this particular institution. Maybe. I mean, and this is where you have to do your research. So you have to do your research and find one thing that you can highlight, something where you can line up with the mission statement of the schools. I really, Mm -hmm. although teaching in large lecture halls is perfectly fine, I really appreciate your small faculty to student ratio here. I really feel like that is a place where I will thrive because X, Y, Z, you know, like you can Mm -hmm. do something like that even. And, you know, especially if it is a place that's maybe not as desirable of location, then you really do need to have a reason why you feel like you fit there. Mm -hmm. And you can sell that. You have you're selling yourself. You have to do that. And I joked with another person. You know, we were like, "Cause I really like eating. Is that a good reason to want the job? <laughs> uh, I like being able to pay rent. Um, you know, like so. You can think of the super honest answers, but at the end of the day, the, you've yeah. got to have a really good reason why you would go there. And if you can't find one, maybe it isn't the right job to apply for. I would agree in the sense that we all, every academic who's applying for that job has those same reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very, very few of us that are already independently well off enough to not need a job. The last major question they said to expect was, do you have any questions for us? Oh, I hate that question. I don't know. It's painful. So we were so we were like, yes, of course, but what do you say? Because that's the hardest one. My tendency would almost always be in this was like for all the job interviews I've ever had as well to find uh, beforehand something really specific in their company work to ask about, mm-hmm. which in some instances I think has worked very well because people say, oh, okay, you're you're doing a lot of background research and you're paying attention to our work and we find that uh, impressive. But I, I don't imagine it works the same way with every institution. Yeah. Did they did they have any suggestions though? So they had a couple suggestions. One question they said you could ask is to what degree is research supported? So you can ask about you know various support for. Uh, presumably they have a certain ex- publication expectation for you, so it's perfectly reasonable to ask to what degree that's supported. The other thing they suggested was something along the lines of, are there opportunities for teaching collaboration or teaching across departments? So something a bit more interdisciplinary. And those, if you were interested in those opportunities, that would, you know, maybe open some doors. It'd be definitely an, an okay type topic to ask about. I would wonder if if you would run into the opposite there, like people who say, no, we're really not into the interdisciplinary thing, or 
no, research isn't really a major component. But again, I, I expect just having that knowledge anyway would help you make a decision as to whether or not it's the job for you to apply for anyway. Or or to take. I mean, at this point, you've right. applied for it. But, um, well, I'm sorry, to, to take, right? Yeah. To continue to the process. But the sense of... But that's fair. Like, just because you're interviewing, it's okay if you go and say, oh, wow, I am not going to fit here. Like, I know we're all scared and we want the job, but it's okay to be honest with yourself, too. It is. And I think that occasionally comes up in even the sort of questions you might get asked where you're not really supposed to be asked about certain things right. um, I was re- I was actually reading a very interesting article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed yesterday about how frequently movability in terms of are you able and capable to move to a different location disproportionately affects eh, no surprise female academics over male academics and specifically part of the paper talked about how many women in academia are asked regularly about their their romantic partner status. And though this is not something that is broadly considered as acceptable criterion for determining whether or not to offer a person a job, the fact that a woman in academia might have a partner in academia, in this case usually a male who has a job, is often a deciding factor. Yeah. And let's be clear, like they legally cannot ask you to disclose things about your marital status, whether or not you're a parent, any of that. They're not actually allowed to ask you, but mm-hmm. oftentimes they will. Or they'll mm-hmm. figure out a or way to a ask of, you a question right. where you're off guard and you give up that information voluntarily. So you do kind of have to watch out. I mean, I will go so the this conference went so far as to suggest that women don't even wear their wedding rings to an interview. What? Uh, yeah. Because it is, there is a deep bias. Uh, right. Women are going to have a much harder time of being taken seriously in that job interview in the first place. And like the, the Chronicle article points out, their marital status is a hindrance, whereas if you're a single woman, you're better off. And if you're a male, it doesn't matter. So... That is one thing. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. Like, that's hard. I mean, I also have a podcast where I've talked about my family, so I guess it's going to be kind of hard to hide that at this stage anyway. Possibly. But at the same time, it seems like occasionally these sorts of questions will come up if you're applying for hundreds of jobs and maybe getting a couple of dozen interviews at best, you know. So is there any good way that you were, uh, that you talked about in this conference about how to ease back those sorts of questions. Yeah, I mean, Hasia suggested just like trying to deflect and redirect back into work type things. Do it politely as possible. One of the things that was pointed out is sometimes they get at the question of trying to figure out if you have kids or if you're planning to have kids as a woman, they might bring up something like, are you interested to know more about our excellence public school system or whatever? And her suggestion was to deflect something along the lines of, I'm already aware of the many wonderful benefits of your community. You know, I, you don't have to sell me on it anymore. Mm-hmm. And there, you didn't make any statement about whether you were really interested or not. And you were still kind about the area you're in. And then you can, you know, at this point, you're speaking and you can turn it back towards something related to the job. Seems appropriate. Although I think one of the biggest takeaways from all of this is just spend a decent amount of time practicing, researching and practicing some of your 
uh, expected answers before you go on any interview as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the one thing that concerns me, though, is I've gone to other talks, you know, like, uh, just like at your university, we've had other sessions on this here at CMU, too. And one of the things they've pointed out is that in a lot of ways, they're assessing whether or not they feel like you'll be a good colleague. And some of that is just personality. And so here's where I find myself concerned is that, so say I take my wedding bands off. I said that weird. I have a wedding band and then another ring that's not really an ing- Anyway, not that anybody needs to know this, but like I, they're both bands. Most people don't wear multiple wedding bands. I'm sorry. So you it, take your wedding bands off. Yeah. Um, am I not being true to myself, you know? And how do I show myself to be a collegial type person if I'm hiding aspects of my life? And that's where I'm stuck, and I don't know. But I also know that if I'm honest, I probably won't get the job because nobody wants to worry about moving a woman with a husband who has a good job and two kids. I don't necessarily see that there's a problem with, uh, say, taking off your wedding band if it means you're more likely to be offered the job that you were already well qualified for, and Mm -hmm. then you happen to wear... I can say this, of course, being, you know, not ever having been married and not having to worry about what is the etiquette of when you wear your wedding band, which is, it's a whole, we could do a whole nother show on that. Well, I don't no, know I mean, it, it's, not, of, it's not even a worry. Like, I don't feel like, it's not like deeply wounding me to take it off. It's, I'm talking about like, like who I am and having to not talk about whole aspects of my life. Like, how do I show that I have any work-life balance if I'm not allowed to talk about my actual life? You see what I'm saying? Right. I would say you're allowed to talk a lot about your actual life after you actually have the job. Right. But again, there are going to be social interactions and dinners and things, and that's where it gets trickier. Now, It's trickier. Yeah. I will say this here. that This brings us to another good point though and another pitfall is do not forget that even when you're out to a dinner or you know they're making it much more of a social type interaction do not forget that you are still being interviewed everything you say matters to that interview process everything you do I once got uh, fantastic advice from a a sort of a mentor figure about whenever you are on any sort of work outing that involves food, like a lunch or a dinner. And the ground rule is you eat at maximum, you never eat more than about half of what everyone else at the table is eating in terms of if you are expected to be the focus of attention, if you're supposed to be talking, if you're supposed to be making Mm -hmm. a deal, you eat less, you drink less or nothing in almost every single occasion. And people don't necessarily notice that you're eating less than them, but you're maintaining a sense of composure throughout the entire process. So even if they're taking you out to a fantastic dinner, mm-hmm. be, be a I little mean, more Yeah, I can see it. the point of that. But I mean, I think that it kind of naturally happens when people are asking you about a question and it's hard to eat. I mean, but then you get you do get to that awkward point though where you still have a bunch of food left on your plate and everybody's done eating and then everybody notices. See, I think that everybody will notice eventually. That's the awkward part. You were never the kid that had to move your food around to avoid eating it, were you? Oh, I was totally picky, but I'm just saying <laughs> that's that's much harder to do as an adult. And then you always have the oh no no no, I've had plenty, thank you. I'm very full. It was delicious. So you can always do that, but 
you will get that question. I've had that question. I have a smaller appetite than a lot of people. I always wind up with that question. I, I just think it's going to come up. Well, I suppose it is. That whole, that whole line of thinking is antithetical to the point of the podcast. So, mm. Anyway, I guess that's probably enough stuff to be thinking about. But if people have <laughs> other tips, they're welcome to share. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of more things. We didn't really even get into like handling the job talk and stuff like that. We can do that on another episode. Have a good subject joke. That's another good one. <laughs> All right. So right. now let's prove how terrible we are at history with the History Trivia Challenge. All right. Do you want to go first? All right. Who was the first animated character to be banned in East Germany for not measuring up to Marxist principles? Mickey Mouse. Very good. <laughs> That's interesting. Because I know there was also uh, a period in the 50s when Walt Disney testified to the House on Un-American Activities um, Committee about how he thought Mickey Mouse was being sort of plagiarized for communist propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. You know, it's a terrible thing that uh, Disney's characters will never fall into the public domain now because we'll never really be able to see that legally. <laughs> so for you, Jen, what astronaut said all he could think about before liftoff was that everything in the capsule was supplied by the lowest bidder? Hmm. Was it John Glenn? Nope. It was Alan Shepard. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. John Glenn popped into my head, but Alan Shepard, of course, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A bit a bit more rickety on that ride. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us. You can contact us on Twitter at IWTTBFpod or email us at academicsneedfood at gmail.com. Thanks to Brian Jones for our music. And it's time to go because we, we should, should be, be ready. ready.